Father, we begin this encampment here, asking your presence, asking your blessing. Lord, we acknowledge that your wisdom is far above ours. We freely admit that you have power which we can never approach. And Lord, we thank you that with those two attributes, you combine a love that we can never understand. So Father, we ask that tonight, tomorrow, the next day, throughout this whole time, that we might learn more of you, that we might learn how to represent you to those who know even less. We ask a blessing, Father, that we might be a blessing to someone else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight I'd like to um, share a story with you. I like stories. I tell stories all the time. When I was teaching and I had uh, these young teachers coming along, one of the things I would often tell them, I'd say, if you think you're teaching and you're not telling a story, you probably aren't. It's the stories the kids remember. This is more or less just a personal testimony. I think it has ramifications for all of you in the audience, so it's not hopefully irrelevant, but it is pretty much my story, the things that I've experienced in the last about four years. Anytime you tell a story, you always have the question of where do you actually get started, you know? There's, there's really only been one perfectly good opening line for a story, but, you know, Moses used that one a long time ago. Um, the problem is there's always things that lead up, you know, and you're always tempted, oh, if I just, I, I should tell a little bit more back here, you know, but we're not going to do that. It'll look scary enough as it is. We're going to start in August of 1980. Some of you don't remember 1980. <laughs> um, we're going to drop most of the details, but suffice it to say that in the uh, summer of 1980, I happened to be living in Colorado at the time, and through a variety of circumstances, uh, I came to the conclusion that the Lord would rather have me be in Washington State. And um, being uh, younger and probably foolisher than I am now, I decided to hitchhike. Um, I didn't have any money. I didn't have a car. And everything that I had, I put into 14 boxes. All I kept under 40, 40 pounds so that uh, the folks that I left the boxes with could mail them to me, you know, later on. Um, well, as it worked out, there were some people that really questioned what I was doing, and they had their, hmm, they had their, their doubts about this whole proposition. Uh, but I assured them that, you know, the Lord was pretty smart, and they had no experience hitchhiking, whereas I had done quite a bit of hitchhiking. And um, I was perfectly uh, capable of realizing that if I stood in one location for a day or two, I probably ought to walk back where I was and stay there. And so I told them, you know, the Lord can tell me what he, what he wants me to do. It's not a problem. Well, as it turned out, they needed some help. They asked me to stay with them one extra day. I was going to leave on Sunday morning. I said, Dave, could you stick around one day and help us? We've got these pears we have to get canned. <laughs> so I said, sure, I'll help you with your pears. And as we were standing there canning these pears outside in the uh, pleasant weather, a gentleman drove up. 
Um, it was on his way from Corpus Christi, Texas to Seattle, Washington, which just coincidentally happened to be more or less where I was headed to. But he had a problem. He had to make stops along the way. He had to stop in Moab, Utah, Mentone, California, and Santa Barbara, California. And he had uh, business to transact in each of these locations. And he was talking to the folks I was helping with their pairs, and he said, I have a problem. He said, oh, what's that? He said, I've got to be in Seattle by Thursday. I've got legal business in Seattle. Well, so what's the problem with that? It doesn't take that long to get to Seattle. But I've got to go here and here and here along the way, and I don't have enough time. I need, I need somebody who can help me drive. Well, he had a van, I had 14 boxes, and I was gone. Poof! <laughs> Along the way, we stopped in Mentone, California. Uh, and he knew somebody down there, whom I did not. And we spent the night, I don't remember which night it was. It was kind of a weird trip, just to be honest. But you know, nonetheless, it got me there. Uh, we, sp we spent the night uh, at the home of a, a little old lady by the name of Leah Schmidtke. Is there anybody here that would recognize that name by any chance? No. Okay. So sad. I'm still trying to find information about her. Um, Mrs. Schmidtke lived there, uh, just Mentone, it's like about six miles from Loma Linda, something like that. Uh, and she had a printing press. Well, one of the things that I'd done in life is run press, and so that was kind of interesting to me. That was back in the days when they didn't have personal computers and such things, and so freedom of the press still belonged to those who had a press. And she had a press. And uh, so that was kind of cool. Um, and I was interested, and so we talked and spent some time, one thing or another, and I looked at some of the things she'd printed up, and she had um, a tendency to print up things dealing with Adventist history, which was another big winner for me. And so I made just a note of this, went on to Seattle, and never saw her again. Hold that thought. A little background here. Ever since I decided that Christianity was worth thought and effort, I've had two kind of conflicting interests that have kicked around in my mind. One is that I've always primarily been interested in the church in North America. Um, I've always felt that if we can get it right here, you know, if we can get things, you know, if we can get things going the right direction here, we've, you know, for, for good or for bad, and that's been both, but you know, for good and bad, North America is still the center of the Adventist universe. <laughs> you know, we have the influence, we have the money, we have the ability to, to change the rest of the world. And so I've always been interested, what can we do for North America? But at the same time, I've always been drawn to what I might call the intensity of overseas work. I'm particularly fond of Advanced Frontier Missions. Some of you are probably familiar with them. I have a niece who's buried away deep in, not, not buried, but uh, um, what should I say, working away, shall we say, deep in China uh, with Advanced Frontier Missions. Uh, you won't see her name in the publication, though. Um, and, uh, you know, I know other people who've, who've gone to uh, other places. Um, some of you are familiar with, with David Gates, Gospel Ministries International. I know a number of people associated with that operation. Some of you may recognize uh, Jeff Rich, Layman Ministry News, and his work, especially in uh, the eastern, former Eastern Bloc of, Ru of the Soviet Union, you know, the countries over there in Eastern Europe and things, China and other places. And I've always been attracted to that. Well, okay, one other quick item. I've always liked history, Edmund's history in particular. Um, it's been useful to me. I've found answers there, and I like it. I mean, I like answers. So I don't like history for history's sake. That's always struck me as really dumb. <laughs> I mean, you know, what's the point of that? But history for tomorrow, that makes sense. I can, I can relate to that, okay? So I've always liked that, and some of the things that um, have attracted me, I've always appreciated the sacrifice and dedication of our pioneers. 
Uh, I've always been intrigued by the, what I might call the inner battle of competing influences within the church. Now, I put that up there euphemistically. Let's be honest. I'm talking about politics, okay? <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. Um, it would be sweet if there were no, never politics within the church. But the church is made up of people who feel deeply about whatever it is they feel deeply about. And one guy feels deeply this way, and one guy feels deeply that way, and you got a deep chasm between, you know? And so naturally, there's, there's always going to be a competing, comp, uh, a competing matter of influence, you know? Because this guy's trying to steer things the way, the way he thinks is right, and this guy's trying to steer them the way he thinks is right. And sometimes God probably just scratches his head and wonders what we're doing down here. But anyhow, um, so I've always been intrigued by that. And something that's always been very poignant to me is the simple fact that we need something that we've never yet attained. Not even back in the good old days of Ellen White, you know? Sometimes we look back and we think, oh, the church must have been so pure and holy back then. Uh, you know, you haven't done very much Advanced history if you think that. But the only other thing you need to realize is we're still here. We're still here. Every year, whatever date you want to pick, you know, October 22 or whatever date you want to pick, every year when we celebrate another year of the Adventist Church, we're celebrating another year of failure. We haven't yet done what needs to be done. It's not to say it's all bad. Good things are done. But we haven't succeeded, you know? Okay, that's always bugged me. I always, uh, always told my students, I said, listen, guys, if you can't do better than my generation has done, this whole thing, you know, we're just, we're just fried. <laughs> Somebody has to kick it up a notch. Somebody's got to get this thing figured out. Somebody better do this. Well, more history. Um, I think I might have skipped a page there or something. That's okay. We'll go on. Some other church history has been fascinating to me. The Anabaptists. Um, if you've never read some of their stuff, you ought to read it. Incredible stories. Okay. Especially, I stumbled onto a, a website that offered free books about the Moravians. I had not known much about the Moravians, so I stumbled onto this website. Incredible. This one book in particular by a guy named Peter Hoover, I don't think it's ever been really published, but it's available on the internet. It's called Behold the Lamb. This is the story of a single church. We would think of it as one large congregation. Maybe at its peak, about 5,000 members. three to 5,000 probably, over different times. They were a church of refugees. They had fled their homeland on foot in night, under pain of death if they were caught. Traveled over the mountains and landed in Germany, Saxony on the estate of Zinzendorf, if you recognize the name. But anyhow, in 1732, less than 10 years after leaving their homeland in Moravia, this group of refugees, the young people came to the elders and said, we're not doing any mission work. It's wrong. The commission is, go ye therefore into all the world. And the young people came and they said, why aren't we doing mission work? And the elders, bless their hearts, who probably had the majority responsibility of just trying to hold things together and get food every day, you know, I mean, uh, elders carry certain responsibilities that young people don't, right? But they said, we're just refugees. <laughs> we, can't, we can't do it. Be patient. I, we promise we will. Well, they waited three years. 
Finally, the young people were impatient. <laughs> the first one was a young man by the name of Leonard Dober, 22 years old, caught ship down to the Caribbean. This one church, in the next 31 years, sent out missionary after missionary after missionary. 79 of them died of fever, murder, or shipwreck in 31 years. 79 from one church. And you know what they did? They kept sending them out. But in 31 years, that one church, Herrenhut from Germany, the Moravians, started churches on St. Thomas, St. Croix, St. John's, Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, and St. Kitts. They baptized more than 4,800 individuals down there. That's 60 converts for every casualty. You know, and I learned something very important from that book. It's okay to run a risk. It's okay to die. There's nothing sacred about my life. The work of God went on before I was born. The work of God will go on after I was dead. It's okay to die. Well, jumping in the story. If I can get my... There we go. No, there we go. We're catching up here a little bit. January 2006, a friend of mine by the name of George Vigneron, he lives down in Oklahoma at the Oklahoma Academy where I used to teach. And he decided in January he wanted to become a massage therapist. So he went out to Banning, California, to the Desert Hot Springs School. You remember, uh, some of you would remember Dr. Charles Thomas, who had started the school down there in Banning. Well, it was the very last term that school was ever going to offer. They were closing down. Dr. Thomas had died some while before. The school had been kept going by his widow and son, I think it was. Um, and uh, school was closing down. Well, so May rolled around, graduation, George passed his boards or whatever testing is involved, whatnot. He was loading up his pickup, ready to head back to Oklahoma, and Mrs. Thomas came out to him and said, George, I wonder if you could help me with something. I said, sure, what, what can I do for you? She says, I have a big problem. Well, what's, what's the problem? She says, several years ago, before my husband died, he was approached by a, a little lady from down by Loma Linda. She brought him boxes and boxes and boxes of notebooks. It was her life work. She was sick and she was dying. She gave it to my husband and said, please, see that this gets used in the Lord's work. And he took it with good intentions. But then he died. And it's sitting in the garage, and we've sold the house, and it has to be empty by Tuesday. And George, this is the little lady's life work. I can't put it in a dumpster. Would you take it and try to find some way to make it useful? Well, they went to look. It turned out it was 28 apple boxes full of notebooks. George hauled the stuff back to Oklahoma. Didn't know much about it. 
opened one box, pulled out one notebook, leafed through, noticed a picture that he didn't understand or recognize. Two guys standing on either end of a sign. The sign said Mound City. Meant nothing to George. Closed the book, put it back in the box, closed the box, wrapped the entire pallet full in plastic, and left it sit for nine months. Well, uh, yeah, there's uh, one of the boxes. Actually, that's considerably cleaned up and organized from the way they came to me. But anyhow, <laughs> in March of 2007, I was down at the Academy. I was doing a weekend series on Advanced History for them. And I was telling the story of Elder John Burden and the purchase of Loma Linda. And I just happened to mention along the way that the real estate development that it was eventually purchased by the Seventh-day Adventists and turned into Loma Linda had originally been known as Mound City. And a little light bulb went on in George's head. He says, ah, I remember this picture. Now I know where Mound City is. And then he got real practical and he said, oh, but more than that, I know how to get rid of 28 boxes of junk. <laughs> Dave likes old stuff, we'll dump it on him. <laughs> so he comes up to me after my meeting and he tells me a little bit about this story and he says, I got all this old stuff, Dave, there might be some real interesting things in there. You like old stuff it, and it comes from down Loma Linda direction, you know, you might, might be really interested. I said, who is this from, George? He said, I don't know, I got it from Mrs. Thomas. She said it was some little old German nurse. And a faint little bell started to ring someplace back in my skull full of mush. German nurse, Loma Linda. And somehow, after 27 years, the name came back to me. I don't think I'd thought of her from the day I'd been there. I said, was that Leah Schmidtke? He says, yeah, I saw that name someplace. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> so I hauled it all up to Kansas, where I was living, and I stuck it in a warehouse. October of 2007, I had uh, been asked to make a presentation down at Advent Hope, down in Loma Linda. And so I was working up some Advanced History stuff. And along the way, in one of my presentations, I just happened to use this statement, which I really like. It says, entire surrender to the Lord is something that is revealed in the daily life, and it exerts an influence upon other lives. You know, it's funny how your thinking goes sometimes. I was that school year just starting in on my 20th year of classroom teaching. And somehow that one statement made me think that maybe it was time for me to change. You know, in 20 years, you teach a lot of kids. And most of them still like me. <laughs> there are a few that think I'm an unmitigated jerk, but, you know, most of them like me. And it just occurred to me, you know, most of them are still Adventists, for which one can be, an educator can be very thankful these days. The great majority of them are still Adventists. But you know, I was as idealistic as the next kid that goes into teaching, you know, and you want to, you want to change the world, you know, you want to shake things up. And I looked at the kids that I had taught over the years, 
three different schools, well, four, I suppose you count, but you know, basically three. Most of them were good Adventists, and I expected they go to church pretty much every week, and they probably pay tithe. There are some of them that are shaking things up, involved with various and sundry mission projects scattered around the globe, uh, doing this, doing that, doing the other thing. Some of them shaking things up here in North America. I was thankful for those, and it got me thinking about the rest. And I said, you know, maybe I could accomplish more for God's work by trying to exert an influence on those kids than I could by starting in with a whole new batch. Maybe it's time for me to do something a little more risky. Well, to make a long story short, in December of 2007, I told the school board that they ought to be looking for a new principal because I was not planning on staying by the next year. Well, that got their curiosity up, so naturally they said, what are you going to do? I said, well, probably go overseas. I had no idea where. In March, I called up an old friend, Jeff Rich, Layman Ministry News, and uh, he was just heading out the door the next day on a six-week trip uh, touring various and sundry of their projects, which are scattered around the world. And I said, hey, um, Jeff, Clarice and I are thinking of doing something a little bit different. Do you have a place you could use us? You know, it's an amazing thing. How many jobs you can find if you're willing to just volunteer? It's like so cool, you know? <laughs> it's like, there's people all over the place that can put you to work. It's not a problem, you know? And so I said, uh, yeah, we're thinking of doing something different. Is there a place? He says, yeah, we're starting an academy in the Philippines. We'd love to have some people that actually know something about running a school. He says, so you pray about that. He says, you know, he says, if that's what God wants you to do, then, then get back in touch with me. I'll be back in six weeks. Well, along about June... I was done with school. You know, I really get annoyed at people who get so excited about what they're going to do next that they make total hash out of what they're doing now. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but yeah. <laughs> I was the principal of a school. You know, I figured I really ought to, I owed it to that school to do a decent job of tying off the loose ends. But by June, you know, the kids were all gone. The report cards had been filled out. The you know, chalkboards had been dusted and whatever else, you know, all that stuff. And I still had no idea what I was going to do with the next stage of my life. I had a contract that went through the end of July, so I was going to get another couple of paychecks. That was nice, gave me a little breathing room. The amazing thing is that my wife put up with all this. I'm the fly by the seat of the pants kind of a guy. You know, I could have been an African bush pilot probably, but my wife is the organized type. You know, she likes to know what's going to happen on November 2nd, you know, five years from now type of thing. She, she likes to have that planned, you know, and it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, whatever. Me, I'm still working on tomorrow usually, but anyhow, um, she's much more organized, but she put up with all this uncertainty and neither of us had a real burden that said, this is what you're doing next. This is where to go. This is, you know, I just, we were comfortable. We were content. We knew that God had a plan. We just didn't know what it was. On the 5th of July, um, I actually gave a uh, Sabbath evening Vespers at our local church and I told about all our possible plans, which included everything from the Philippines to Guyana at that point. <laughs> no certainty whatsoever. Um, I think it was probably the next Tuesday. I was standing at the kitchen sink washing dishes. I try to get that in every time I tell this story because it's 
That's, 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 that's worth some points. So um, <laughs> I was standing in the sink washing dishes and thinking, you know, and, and there was just a, a simple question that kind of kept coming to me. And the question was, why am I doing this? <laughs> the question is not, why am I going overseas someplace? There's all sorts of good reasons for doing that. I love that work. The question was, why am I leaving North America? North America has always been my interest and my burden. Well, my mind went back to the quotation. And it dawned on me just very forcibly that the reason I had no particular burden for Guyana or the Philippines or Ukraine or China or India, all of which were options, was that the whole purpose was just because I wanted to shake up my kids in North America. I was going to drag my family halfway around the world on the odd chance I might shake up North America. It was worth it. I was happy with that. And then I had my little epiphany where God just led my mind in much less time than I can possibly tell the story. First question that came to me was, what if I succeed? What if I inspired 50 or 100 of my former students and all of a sudden they said, let's do something. I mean, that old geezer can do something. We can, you know. What would they do? And I thought to myself, well, I suppose they'd all go off to the Philippines or Guyana or someplace. And North America would still be here. Now, you can argue with that logic, but that's what came to my mind. And then I got to thinking, somebody needs to show that God is just as powerful in North America as he is in the mission fields. Somebody needs to show that extreme faith, and I'm kind of stealing that phrase from David Gates, whose use of it I admire. Extreme faith isn't only for brave souls in the third world someplace. Somebody needs to show that when God says something needs to be done, he guarantees the result as long as we go about things his way. It's important. You can't take things out of context and say, oh, God said something, so ignoring all the details, I'll do it my way and he will bless it. You can't do that. You've got to pay attention. So the next thing that I realized, and I'm so grateful that the Lord put this in my mind at that point, is I realized why it's so hard here in North America. You know, I've known people who've died in the mission field. Anybody know the Nortons? Bob and Neva Norton? We assume they're dead. Plane went down two and a half years ago now. Haven't been seen. It was assumed the plane went down, but then a year and a half later, the plane was seen flying for a drug cartel. So they were probably executed in the jungle. That's tragic. They were good people but it's noble and it's honorable. And the blood of missionaries is seed. If you can't find three people that step forward because of hearing that story and said, I'm going to learn to be a mission pilot, then something's wrong with, with us. You know, bad things can happen in the mission field. 
it could be eaten by a giant snake. <laughs> you know? You can die of tropical fevers. Gary Norton's grandson, six years old, I can't remember the son's name right now. You remember? Anyhow. Six years old, he died of malaria because his parents are missionaries over in Africa. It's tragic, but it's noble. But you know, that doesn't happen in North America. When you foul things up in North America, you're not going to get eaten by a snake. You're going to be punished, and you're going to be punished hard, and it's all going to be financial, and you're going to end up living in a culvert someplace. And that doesn't have the appearance of nobility. And everybody knows that's what happens when you foul things up in North America. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. And you know what the, what the result will be. If the Lord does not step in and defend you, you're going down, brother, because you don't have a normal job. So you can hang a little cross on the end of your culvert and try and attract people. And it doesn't seem real pop, you know, it doesn't seem real likely. So people are scared spillis. And I understand that. Still, I thought, somebody needs to do it. I'm one slide ahead there. Don't worry about that too much right now. And right then, in my mind, coming out of 30 years of personal experience and, and Adventist history, I knew what it was that somebody needed to do. It's what Ellen White, 105 years ago, called gospel medical missionary evangelism, using companies of workers working the cities from outposts. I knew, without a shadow of a doubt, that that was the project. That was the perfect project for shaking up North America and showing that God will still honor his specific plans when we endeavor to follow them out. I thought, what a cool idea. And I knew the history of it. I'd actually, back in the 1970s, I lived in the home of a fellow who worked with the guy who pioneered the whole thing. I'd heard the stories. I knew some of this stuff. Says, that's the plan. Somebody needs to do that. Somebody really, really needs to do that. And then, obviously enough, you can understand what happened next. <laughs> so why don't you do it, Dave? Well, there were two really glaring problems for why I was not the guy to do that. A, I'm pretty much a nobody, and what I do or don't do wouldn't have the kind of impact that a project like that would need to have. And B, I've been an Adventist school teacher. <laughs> I don't have any money. <laughs> this is not going to happen. This is, you know, if, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm footing the bill, it's not going very far. Both of those points are very valid, but I knew intuitively, instinctively, Im immediately that those are the kinds of things that extreme faith simply mocks at and walks around or climbs over and keeps moving on. Amen. And so I got to thinking. I said, what... Uh, what could I do? I thought, you know, if I just get a job, if I get a job where I earn some money, I could start a small company of Bible workers. Some of these AFCO or Mission College or, or, or um, Black Hills or, or whoever else, I'm, who am I missing? Anyhow, all those guys, all these, uh, all these different, you know, Bible worker training programs and things. There's got to be some of them out there that'd be willing to volunteer in Wichita. If I could just earn a little money, you know, if the Lord would bless me with a, a normal job someplace, I could earn some money. I'd be happy to take in volunteers. I could get, you know, four, five, six volunteers, room, board, pay gas money, whatever, you know, and, and I could have a little team of Bible workers because that's a key part of this gospel medical missionary evangelism plan that Ellen White 
laid out a hundred years ago. But my wife, being the practical type, said, it's a great idea, Dave, but there is a problem. She says, you don't have any place to put those people. Your house is too small. Well, that was practical. And so I thought, you know, that's exactly right. If God blesses me with the house, then I can do this. So that's kind of a fleece. I'm not a real big fan of asking, making up my own fleeces, but when the Lord puts one readily available for me, I think it's a great deal. So I said, I need a house. And it has to be according to the Lord's specifications. It has to be out in the country. It has to have room for a garden. It has to be you know, within driving distance of the city. It has to have you know, four or five or six bedrooms and a bunch of bathrooms. And it has to have parking space for all the cars. And, and I have to be able to just rent it because eh, I don't have any money anyhow. And I'm renting the house I'm in, so it was easy. I didn't have to sell a house. I just, you know, okay, we're not, not renting this one anymore. We're renting that one. Problem is that house does not exist around Wichita. It's a long story why, but that house does not exist. It took me two years to find the closest thing that I had, and that's what I was living in. So I said, I'll talk to Larry Cook. He's a church member, a friend of mine. He's the only guy that I know that knew anything about real estate. He's a real estate contractor guy, uh, real estate developer. He had been a serious Christian much of his life. He'd only become an Adventist about seven years before that. He's the only guy I knew anything that knew anything about real estate. And I said, oh, I'll talk to him. Well, you know, the next Sabbath was the 12th of July. And, you know, there never was a good opportunity to talk to him. Plus, I was feeling a little bit lame about this whole thing. I mean, I've been telling people for like eight or nine months now, we're going to go overseas, and now I'm going to substitute. Well, well maybe we'll move to the other side of town. You know, it seems a little, it seems kind of pathetic, you know. Uh, so, um, you know, that Sabbath passed, and I didn't have a chance to talk to him. And then a whole week went by, and my wife and I talked the thing over a bit more. And the 19th of July... Sabbath. I watched all day long for an opportunity to talk to Larry. We spent the whole day at church. He spent the whole day at church. He had a study group in the afternoon. He was always busy. I was always busy. Never had an opportunity. We had vespers in the evening. It was over. It was all done. I hadn't talked to him. And I looked up and I saw him and another fellow carrying a table off to put away. I said, now's my chance. I'll catch the guy. And I went trotting on after him. They were going into the fellowship hall just as I came out of the sanctuary. And he looked up and he saw me coming out of the sanctuary doors. And he says, Dave, don't go anywhere. He says, I got a question for you. Good. I got a question for you, too. <laughs> so um, we finally got together, got the table put away. Two of us are standing in this empty fellowship hall. And there he just stood there and he looked at me for a second. And he took a deep breath and he just launched. He says, Dave, listen, he says, I've been in Adventist here for like seven years. And the whole time I've been here, I hear people talking about moving out in the country and growing our own food and getting ready for the time of trouble and working in the cities and health food stores and vegetarian restaurants and, and rural sanitariums and all this stuff. But nobody's doing it, Dave. We just talk. It's nothing but talk. And I get really tired. Nobody's doing it. He says, I, I, I don't relate too well to that. He says, you know, if, we're, if it's worth talking about, it's worth doing. He says, so I'm, I'm fed up and it's time to, get, time to make it happen. He says, I'm going to start a vegetarian restaurant. I want to have a health food store. He says... This is, this is something we've got to do. He says, I've I got to figure out this whole country living thing. He says, you know, we've we got to do this. He says, but I've been, he says, I don't know anything about this. He says, I've only been in Adventist for seven years. I haven't even gotten all the way through the testimonies yet. <laughs> Brothers and sisters. Yeah, more of us need to read those books. They are wonderful books. Read them all the way through. Anyhow. He says, I haven't even got through the testimonies yet. He says, but no, I've learned something. He says, in my construction business, I don't have to know everything. 
I need some, somebody says, I want Schedule 90 concrete. I don't have to know how to lay Schedule 90 concrete. All I have to do is know how to hire the guy who knows how to lay Schedule 90 concrete. <laughs> so I've been asking the Lord for the last week. He says, Lord, who has any idea of all this stuff? Who can I get to help me get this thing off the, on, its, on the right foot? And he says, the only name that keeps coming to mind is you. Now, I know you're going overseas, but you can be around for a little while. <laughs> oh, and by the way, he says, next Wednesday, I'm closing on 164 acres, 65 miles east of town. That'll be our health retreat. And I'm standing here thinking to myself, you know, for better or worse, I've pretty much been involved in Adventist institutional life all my life since I went away to school when I was 13, you know? You learn a few things over the years. First thing I'm thinking is this poor guy has absolutely no idea what he's getting into. <laughs> so I pity this poor brother. But the second thing I'm thinking is if you take his ideas and put them together with my one little idea of a group of Bible workers, you're getting really pretty close to what the Lord has called to be called for in every city, in every city. Well, okay. So um, my contract as principal expired on July 31, and I started working with Larry Cook on August 1. It took us about a year and a half to take this house. That's not the house, but that's okay. I think I missed a picture somehow, but anyhow. Um, the house is right there. You can see it. I had a close-up picture of it before. A before picture, which um, doesn't look quite as pretty. Let's put it that way. And, and turn it into this house. That's out at the farm. And um, uh, let's see. There's another. Okay, that one didn't show up either. I'm sorry. I have a couple pictures that are missing. Well, we, we got some work done out at the farm. I had some pictures of that I was going to show you, but we'll, we'll pass. You probably know what a farm looks like. Um, but Larry was a real estate developer. He just happened to finish this building, had it sitting empty in town. He was just ready to start renting it out because that's how he makes his living. He goes down and gets down on both knees and begs the bank for a massive loan so he can build a building, and then he hopes he can lace it out to, for enough money to pay the bank loan and you know have a little bit to live on. And he says, you know, maybe I'll just play with my own building this time. We thought maybe it'd make a good restaurant. So we started in from scratch and turned it into a restaurant. It's called the Sozo. I really like that name. Sozo is a Greek root word which is used in the New Testament for both physical healing and spiritual salvation. Uh, really, the root idea of the word, as I understand it, I am no Greek scholar, so you know, don't quote me on this with any sense of authority, but as I understand it, the basic idea is taking something that's been damaged and bringing it back up to original specs. Wow. It's a pretty cool concept for a health food store. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty cool concept for evangelism. Well... There's a little hours sign. That's been one of the, uh, the, the best little witnessing tools we have. You know, we've never had, we've never had a negative reaction at whatsoever. Restaurant seats about 60. Has a nice big open kitchen. Customers can see, you know, everything that goes on with their food, whether it falls on the floor or not. Uh, <laughs> the uh, lady in the front there is Veronica Jenkins experienced Bible worker, now our head waitress 
and the Bible we're going. You know, the way we look at this is kind of like, you ever watch those National Geographic specials, you know, where they, they're watching, they got the camera set up with the infrared thing, watching the water hole at night, you know, when the wildebeest come down to get a drink and the lions leap out, you know, and yeah. yeah this is nothing but a Bible worker ambush. That's what this thing is, you know. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, Veronica, bless her heart, you know, she's, she is, there is not a day goes by that she doesn't pray with a customer. Um, the, the openings are incredible. It's, it's, it's bizarre. This is uh, Jordan Fowler. He is our head baker and Bible worker, AFCO graduate. Uh, he's got his slate full of Bible studies too. The Lord sent us a chef. This is a real chef. His name is Miguel Larche. Um, I can look people straight in the eye and tell them we have the best chef in Wichita. He is the only French-trained chef in Wichita. And since we happen to be a vegan establishment, I like to point out to them that he received, uh, after his first three years of study in his native Martinique, he finished up with two years of study in Nice, France, under a guy by the name of Jean Montagard, who turns out to be the only vegan chef to ever win the Cordon d'Or, which is the highest award in French cooking. Long story short, Miguel knows his fancy schmancy. And he was a Bible worker in the Michigan Conference for one year, so he knows the Bible too. Um, it's a good thing. The Lord brought a lot of pieces together. I'm not telling half the story. The, Miguel had his house on the market for uh, almost a year and a half during the whole time we are getting the, the restaurant built up and ready and everything like that. And he kept calling, you know, it hasn't, I don't have anybody interested in buying it, blah, 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 you know. And we wanted him to start on the 15th of January and on uh, December 24th, some guy walked up, knocked on the door, looked at the house and said, I'll pay you cash. So that worked out pretty well. Um, the Lord brought all sorts of pieces together and uh, made a team and gave us an opportunity to try and demonstrate, to the best of our understanding, what he was advocating through Ellen White 105 years ago. Do we have it perfect? No, we don't. No. I could give you more weaknesses in our program than, than a, a wise salesman would want to list. <laughs> but, but the Lord is blessed. It's just incredible. Um, we've got, we've got, the, we've got the, the politicians coming through. We've got the, 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 the restaurants, we're told, are a special tool for reaching the, the, the upper classes. And they come in and they're lonely. And they, they love us. Yeah. Um, we have the highest rating of any restaurant in Wichita. Um, and I just, looking over, uh, I went, oh, it's been a few weeks back, but we went over all the online recommendations we could find and all the different, you know, there's Happy Cow and Vegan This and That and Yelp does one and Google does one and all these different guys where you can do the recommendations. There was not a single negative recommendation. And totally unsolicited, 47% of them included comments about the friendly and helpful staff or something, some variation on that. We're making an impact person to person. That's the thing. That's what's, what's so great about this. Um, one of the guys we met in the restaurant, wouldn't have met him any other way. He came to church regularly for three months. Uh, has not come last little while. His wife is giving him some grief about that, you know, but they still both come in and eat. We really didn't know who he was. His name was Jerry Hahn. He's a nice guy. We called him Jerry. 
Found out later that Rolling Stone magazine rates him as the third or fourth greatest jazz guitarist in the world. Okay. How would I meet him? I don't hang out in jazz bars. <laughs> you know? Well, so all these pieces came together, but there was one more piece. About a month after we got going, I finally had a chance to look in those boxes. And I found a gold mine. It was all the history of Dr. Kellogg, medical missionary work, how it came together, what it was doing, why it fell apart, why when Dr. Kellogg was eventually disfellowshipped for various and sundry reasons in 1907, the church very largely, not, not maliciously, not intentionally, but very largely turned away from everything that was associated with him. And not all of it was bad. You have to read how hard Ellen White tried to hang on to this guy. A year after he'd written Living Temple, his book with pantheism, she called him God's physician. She tried everything she could to hang on to the guy because much, most of what he had was what we needed. And to a degree, it was a classic baby in bathwater scent. And we turned away, not maliciously, not intentionally, but because we're human. And we really were kind of tired of Kellogg by that time. <laughs> He'd caused us a lot of grief. We turned away from what he had started. And we've lost because of that. Ellen White says the combination of work for the physical body and work for the soul is the singular, the true interpretation of the gospel. Amen. We've got to get back to that. The last closing work will be medical missionary work. It will be the only form of mission work, or or, yeah, mission work we're told. Okay. Medical missionary work, especially as it applies to the large cities, is the, is the key, I think I mentioned this already, the, the key that, that ignites the loud cry. She says, when we do this right, it will set underfoot a movement such as we have never yet witnessed. When we do the cities right, she says, that's where the money is. When we do the cities right, the wealth of the Gentiles will flow into our coffers. That's what's going to pay for the loud cry. How did you think we were going to pay for it? We're always just going to put it on our visa card? <laughs> you know? We've got a lot of work to do. And that's why I'm happy with where I'm at and what I'm doing. And the one question I'd leave with you is, why not you? Why not you? I don't know exactly what the Lord's calling you to do. But you know what? It's okay to die. So far, my family and I are not dead. Yeah. We've been hammered financially, <laughs> but we're not dead. Let's close with prayer. Father, we love you for your wisdom, your might, and your love for us. And Lord, I, I hope that, though it's not their story, and it's just my story, I hope that someone may catch a gleam of encouragement or inspiration from this little story tonight. Father, I pray a blessing on every worker who sets their life before you. Help us to realize that it's okay to give up on far more than we'd like to hang on to. Help us to place our lives in your hands. And may this convocation here, this wellness reformation, may it live true to its name. And may its influence be to increase both wellness and medical missionary work and reformation. May we have your blessing tonight. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.